Good evening. We are in, I think, the, where we left off in the fourth chapter of the book of Nehemiah. We learned the names of the 41, there were 41 different groups that were building the wall in chapter 3. Uh, just all a potpourri type of people who just wanted to get involved with the Lord's work. We're going to find out that they were not getting paid. They had to stop whatever they were doing and come alongside Nehemiah. Nehemiah gave a rousing speech, but it was because the hand of the Lord was on him. And that got the people excited, and uh, they began to work. We left off chapter 4, verse 14, and it says, Nehemiah says, And I looked and arose and said to the nobles, to the leaders, and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid, because remember, Samballot and the boys had shown up. They're trying to stop them from working, from building the wall. Nehemiah tells them, Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, great and awesome. And fight for your brethren, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. Verse 15, and it happened when our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had brought their plot to nothing. That's always good for the adversary and his people to understand God is fighting for the believer. So there was a temporary lull, uh, but the Israelites, they must continue continue to be vigilant, to be unafraid, to continue the work that the Lord has put on their hearts to do. He says that all of us return to the wall. That's a good job. Everyone to his work. The building starts again. Like I said, they must keep watch. They must be vigilant while they're building the wall. The work has reached, by this time, the halfway part of the, of the, of the wall. The workers had its moments of Demoralization brought about by the scale of the task because it was a huge uh, circumference of a building they were, a wall they were building. The pleas of the workers and their families had started to resonate and because they, they had come from a far land to get to Jerusalem. They left their families, they left their friends, and they are building this wall. So no doubt, the families back home are the people who were far away. They began to worry about them. They were exposed. They were vulnerable. And you can imagine the defiant pleas for them to return home and really abandon the work of the Lord. Verse 16 tells us, so it was from that time on that half of my servants worked at construction. How many of you guys ever did construction work? So you know that's a pretty easy job there. <laughs> This, this amazes me. He says that half of my servants worked at construction while the other half held the spears, the shields, the bows, and, and, wore, and wore armor. And the leaders were behind all of the house of Judah, those who built on the wall and those who carried burdens loaded themselves so that one hand they worked construction and with the other they held a weapon. So they were diligent to do their job. Ephesians 5, 15, 16 tells us, Paul says, see then that you walk circumspectly. I always tell you that word means acrobat on a tight wire, knowing exactly where you're going, 
not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Verse 18, it says, every one of the builders had his sword girded at his sides as he built. Nehemiah's confidence wasn't with the swords and all that stuff. His confidence was in God. It says in verse 20, our God will fight for us. That's what Nehemiah had told them. And then it says, and the one who sounded the trumpet was beside me. Verse 19, then I said to the nobles, the rulers, and the rest of the people, the work is great and extensive, and we are separated far from one another on the wall. So I want you to understand they're not all close by. I don't know if it went for a half a mile before the next crew would be working. They're all working. They are separated far from one another on the wall. And you know, when I read that, I couldn't help but to think about Paul's admonishment to the Hebrews when he says in verse 10, 25, not forsaking the assemblies of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Lydia just got back from visiting Erica, and I was thinking about all the homes I went to to get a meal. I still, you still owe me one, Paul Allen. Anyway, <laughs> all the homes I went, they were concerned about the health. They wanted me to keep it, but I took advantage of that. And that's what Paul is saying in the book of Hebrews. We need to look out for one another, and that's what Nehemiah is doing here. It says, notice just because the Israelites' trust was in God to deliver them does not mean that we can be slack, does not mean that we can, hey, I'm on my way to heaven, so I don't have to read my word, I don't have to hang out with the believers, I don't have to do anything, just float down the lazy river, I'm going to heaven. The sovereignty of God is not to be excused for our negligence and dereliction of duty, whether the issue is prayer, whether it is evangelism, or the need to engage in defensive or aggressive warfare, praying is our real work. That's why we should always start, no matter what the task is, no matter what the situation is, prayer is always our real work. And our activity is the index of it. I've made this point several times already but it bears frequent repetition. The world, the flesh, and the devil will seek every opportunity to expose all forms of our spirituality. He will test us, and he will attempt to demonstrate it that we aren't who we say we are. This is appearing right now, matter of fact, but they are staying vigilant, they are staying observant of what's going on. Remember, this is a project. They're building this wall, a chance to demonstrate faith and courage as they built it. And because at that project, uh, they, accompanied, they were accompanied by fear and opposition. And remember, the opposition is Sam Ballot and Tobiah's evil bent. They don't want them to fulfill this. And we should never be surprised whenever we're doing anything for the Lord, serving on, on the church on Sunday, Wednesday, VBS, doesn't matter what it is. Anytime we do something for the Lord, you can expect the adversary 
or the world or the flesh to rise up against us. That's just something. And, you know, so many times we cave under that pressure that the flesh or the world or Satan comes at us with because we carry, really, we carry around the world with us. And how do we do that? We may forget everything else. We may forget our Bibles. We may forget other things, but we don't forget our cell phone. If we do forget it, we usually make a U-turn, go back home, and get it. So we're carrying around the world with us. Everywhere we go, we can see what's going on in the world. And really, that just brings discouragement down. And there's a lot to say about Christian liberties. Lydia was talking about this as she was, we were coming up here. You, you guys know I like uh, Tucker Carlson. Uh, I can't think of the guys now for the voice of freedom, but I know some pastors that when they get in the pulpit, all they talk about is Christian liberties. But we have something greater to talk about, Jesus Christ and what he has done for us. I'm always reminded in Exodus, when God finally sets the children of Israel free, I always think about all of the believers in the coming Messiah who didn't get to see that day didn't get to see that day that they were set free, but they still followed the Lord. This world, as you know, is, is never going to be exactly the way we want it. And we can't get caught up in politics and all those other things because it's never going to be the right way. It's almost which one do you vote, vote for for the lesser degree if they're going to do the right thing. It's never going to be right until Jesus comes. And we should vote, and we should vote for the most ethical uh, politician we, that is going to give us the liberties to come to church and not be bothered by persecution because we are believers. We should do that. But it's never going to be right until Jesus comes. Uh, and that's the problem they're having with. The, the, the key word is down here. It's never going to be right down here. Leviticus 20, 24 says, But I have said to you, you shall inherit their land, and I will give it to you to possess a land flowing with milk and honey. That's not here. We're in the wilderness. That's in heaven. I am the Lord your God who has separated you from the peoples. Do not be afraid of them. That's our calling. How do we not be afraid? He tells us, remember the Lord, great and awesome, and fight for your brethren, your sons, your daughters, your wife, and your houses. Nehemiah 4.14, the latter part of that verse says this, do not be afraid of them. That's what Nehemiah tells them. Remember the Lord, great and awesome, and fight for your brethren, your sons, your, your daughters, your wife, and your houses. So the opposition from the flesh has shown itself in this passage in a way some are yielding to the threats by suggesting that the work was too much for them and that the threats to them and their families were very real. Our hearts, the believer, is still deceitfully wicked. We have to understand that. They're still indwelling sin in me and all of us. And it's acts 
always pulls us down to the flesh when, when temptation comes, when circumstances we don't like come, and we have to understand that. That's why we need to yield to the Holy Spirit in our lives because God is wanting us to grow in holiness. That's why we're down here, to be more uh, purified into the image of Jesus Christ. That's why all the trials and the tribulations come. He's perfecting in us a holy life so that the unbeliever will see it and ask the reason for the hope we have. Every time we find something significant to do in the kingdom of God, we can expect a thousand different arguments that draw our zeal and our concern in another direction. At such time, we need to ask the Lord to strengthen us, Remembering Jesus' word to a failing disciple in Gethsemane. He says in Mark 14, 38, he tells the disciples to watch and pray lest you enter temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. We would like to get in the flesh and spur of the moments. You just want to tell someone your mind, your feelings, how you feel, but we have to remember we are children of God, and we're supposed to yield to the Holy Spirit in our lives. Peter, it says this in 1 Peter 5, 8. Peter says, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking who he may devour. Their work was hard, was combined with, they had to trust to God to give them the grace to finish this work. And that's what they're counting on now, the Lord. Verse 21, so we labored in the work, and half of the men held the spears from daybreak until the stars appeared. At the same time, I also said to the people, let each man and his servants stay at night in Jerusalem, that they may be our guard by night and a working party by day. So imagine all these men and their uh, older sons staying in Jerusalem while their wives and their families are 50, 100 miles away. They don't know what's going on. They're exposed. They're vulnerable. I imagine they didn't like that, and we're going to see they're arguing and complaining when they get back home. Verse 23 tells us, so neither I, my brethren, my servants, nor the men of the guard who followed me took off our clothes. This reminds me, Andy Minio has a rap song, probably five years ago, and the name of the song was Don't Get Comfortable. Pull it up. Y'all should look. That's a great rap song. Andy Minio, great, great rapper. Anyway, and he talks about how the believer can get comfortable down here, and we should never get comfortable in this world as if we're going to stay here. That's what Jesus talked about all the time. We should never be conformed to this world and the things that's in it, but we should always be transformed by the word, by the renewing of our mind, and then we'll have heavenly thoughts, and that's where our mind will be on heavenly things. He says, except that everyone took them all for washing. Chapter 5, you begin to hear about these grievances. They begin to arise for a lack of money and provisions for their families that are far away, so they begin to think about that. If Satan cannot get you one way, 
Because Tobiah and the other two boys, they came and they were expecting them to stop the building of the wall. That didn't work. So Satan comes at them another way. He begins to let them know that their families are in need. They need provision. They need to be provided for. Why are you building this wall? Remember, these dudes aren't getting paid for it. They, they stopped their jobs that they were getting paid for to build a wall that they're not getting paid for. And so here comes the thoughts, and that's what's, what's happening here. Satan will always use his strategies. Verse 1, and there was a great outcry of the people and their wives against their Jewish brethren. It tells us in verse 2, for there were those who said, we, our sons and our daughters, are many. Therefore, let us get grain that we may eat and live. It's also very well some thought to improve the city and where they were at, that they could just go and get food, but there was a famine also that was taking place. So starvation was kicking in. Nehemiah continues to implore them to build this wall. And so they begin to chirp. You know, arguing is always like this. All it takes is one to start arguing. And then another starts, and then another starts, and the whole crowd is bombed out. And that's what Nehemiah doesn't want. And they're really arguing because they don't have enough, they think. They're really arguing about the provision. And who's the provider for us? God. So anytime we're arguing about we don't have enough this, we don't have enough that, we're not arguing at the spouse, we're arguing truly at God. It reminds me of Genesis chapter 30, verse 2, when, when uh, Rachel comes to Jacob and she's bummed out because she hadn't had a kid yet. And, she's, and, and it says, and Jacob's an anger was aroused against Rachel. And he said, am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? So we may take our anger out and frustration out on a, on a spouse, on a brother or a sister, but we're complaining, and God knows it's really things aren't going our way, and we're complaining at him. That's where all complaints comes from. Verse 3, there were also some who said we have mortgaged our lands and vineyards and houses that we might buy grain because of the famine. There were also those who said we have, here comes another complaint, we have borrowed money for the king's taxes on our lands and vineyards. The Persians were notorious about tax keeping and, and hey, almost like the United States, but I better not say too much about that. <laughs> but they were notorious about getting their taxes. And you couldn't write the IRS and say, give me a six months, give me a year. If you didn't have your taxes on that day they were supposed to be received, you lost your house, you lost your land, you lost all of it. So they were worried about that. Whenever we worry, it always shows, it boils down to, whether we admit it or not, it boils down to a lack of trust in God. Jesus says, hey, look at the birds of the air, how they neither reap nor store or store in barns, but my heavenly Father them, how much more will he take care of us? So it's always when that worry comes, and it will come, 
but we have to combat it with the word of God. Because worry usually comes, you're in the flesh really when you're worrying, so you already have that strike against you. Then the enemy takes it and he begins to pour it on more and it takes the word of God to combat that. And that's what has started happening because God in his provision, we know in the Old Testament, he had rules, regulations, stipulations. If you could not pay, well, you could hire yourself out. For six years, seventh year, no matter how much you owed, your debt would be canceled. And, you know, as I was reading this and going back to the Old Testament, I said, man, I wish that still worked. <laughs> I would just not pay my money until the seven years is going to be mine anyway. That's how, and I was telling Lydia, now I'm, I'm beating my horse now. I'm showing frustration. That's how so, and God knew this how much a property, if, if your parents gave it to you and, and they got it from their parents and their grandparents, it becomes someone else's. God never intended that because after the seventh year, it would always come back to the owner. Man knows how to mess things up, in my opinion, anyway. Leviticus 25 gave gave further stipulations concerning the possibility of forfeiture because of economic circumstances if a person fell into poverty and lost his fill or other uh, uh, property. There had to be opportunities to return that land to its original owner. It could be brought, bought back at a certain price. If you didn't have that price, like I said, after the seventh year, you could pay it or a kinsman redeemer who did have the money could pay it. You guys help me out. I told you I was going to start coming with one question or two every time I get up here. What's that little book in the Old Testament that, what was the guy's name who bought the land back for somebody? Good. And what's the book? Yeah. I'm going to tell Pastor Brian, I'm going to tell Pastor Jonathan when he comes up here, Always have one question or two for you guys to keep you awake. But Boaz, so we see that played out. And then even after the sixth year, uh, the seventh year, God is so caring. He had that 50th year of Jubilee. No matter what, it would come back to you. That's amazing. That shows how much God cares for us. And so that's what they're working on right now. It, it, First Corinthians 16.4, and the reason I'm reading this, it speaks of money and how we should be givers to the kingdom of God. It says, now concerning Paul, he says, now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given orders to the churches of Galatia, so you must do also. On the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collections when I, when I come. So Paul was getting this money, taking it to Jerusalem. He says, and when I come, whomever you approve by your letters, I will send to bear your gift to Jerusalem. But if it is fitting that I go also, they will go with me. Here's a good one. We all know this, 2 Corinthians 9, 6, 7. But this I say. He who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. I got to tell y'all this story. 
I always told y'all I was raised up in a Baptist church. My mom pinched me all the time because most of the time I fell asleep, so I'm putting that out, mama. But she would always give us a quarter or something. I mean, I was seven, eight years old. 50 cents, we had to stand up, come up here, put the collection in, go back, sit down. And I always heard my mom and dad say, when a bill needed to get paid or anything that you would think was very important, my dad would always say, have we paid the tithes? Have we did that? And that was even being instilled in me when I was an unbeliever. No one had to tell me to pay the tithes. I'm a believer. I know I have to pay the tithes. And I can still say that since we've been paying tithes, we've never lacked for anything. Let me, let me tell you something. When I married Lydia, you could count on it. You don't mind me saying it. You could count on it. We stayed in an apartment every month. You could count on the lights was going out. I, didn't, I, I was blowing my money some kind of way. We didn't pay the light bill. It's just the lights going off. I could count clockwork, lights going off, lights going off. But when I come to know the Lord and paid my tithes, lights haven't been off since, unless lightning knocks them off, thunder knocks them off. God is faithful. He says, I will prove you on this. If you are faithful to me in paying your tithes, I'm going to make a way out of no way. That's what Malachi says. So I had to give you props, Lord. Verse 5, yet now our flesh is as the flesh of our brethren. Nehemiah brings them back. Nehemiah says, hey, look, you guys, we are one. We're in this thing together. You have to understand this. Our children as their children, and indeed we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have been uh, brought into slavery. It is not in our power here, it is to redeem them, for other men have our lands and vineyards. One commentator suggests that the singling out of the daughters in verse 5 means that they were being used to gratify their creditors. That's what he says. So it was lust as payments. That's why they had to do something. It doesn't surprise me because that's the way man works. Verse 6 and, and, it, and Nehemiah says, and I became very angry when I heard their outcry and these words after serious thought. So he just didn't spew what he was thinking. He thought about it. Uh, Proverbs says, whoever guards his mouth and tongue keeps his souls from trouble. So there was exploitation of the poor that was going on. And we're going to find out they were using usury. And Nehemiah, who was a fairly wealthy man, I kind of feel like he was doing it. But when he was rebuked and heard the word from the Lord, he stopped this. So uh, that, even he was doing it, but he stopped it. And it reminds me of Galatians seven fourteen because no man is perfect. All this shows us that Nehemiah wasn't perfect, but when he found out the truth, when he was rebuked of the truth, he did the right thing. And that's all we can ask of anyone. Paul, as you know, he rebuked Peter. Galatians 2, 7, 14 says this. On the contrary, I love what John Corson says about this verse right here. John Corson, I don't know if I would take it this far, but maybe it could have. 
John Corson says, if Peter wouldn't have uh, rebuked, if Paul wouldn't have rebuked Peter, that would have been the end of Christianity. That's how important it was because he was going back to the law. So truly, he's right. It says, but on the contrary, when they saw that the gospel for the uncircumcised had been committed to me, Paul speaking, as the gospel of circumcised was committed to Peter, for he worked effectively in Peter for the apostleship to the, to the circumcised also worked effectively in me toward the Gentiles. And when James, uh, Cephas, and John, who seemed, I love when he says that, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that had been given to me, they gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship. Remember the Jerusalem council that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the uh, circumcised. They desired only that we should remember the poor, the very thing which I also was eager to do. Now, when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face. That's what Nehemiah is doing. The pressure is on, and it was on tremendously more, I think, with uh, Paul here. And he says, when Peter came to Antioch, I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. For before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with them, so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. But when I saw pressure is on Paul, Paul could have cowered down. He knew what was true. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, if you being a Jew live in the manner of Gentiles and not as the Jews, why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews? Jesus Christ said amen to that because Jesus, remember when he goes into the money changers, turns over the tables and all that? Remember the guy with the withered hand when they were mocking him and making fun of him? Jesus stood up for him. There's sometimes we have to be firm in the word. We have to speak the truth, and we can speak it in love, but the truth needs to be spoken no matter what the consequences are. And that's what Nehemiah is doing. That's what Paul does. That's what all the believers somewhere in their lives in this book tells us they did. Paul tells us we are to be angry without sinning. It can be done. And so Nehemiah's reaction is the right response to immoral conduct that hurts others. Verse 7 says this, I rebuked the nobles, Nehemiah did, and rulers, and said to them, each of you is exacting nursery from his brother, so I called a great assembly against them. And I said to them, according to our ability, we have redeemed our Jewish brethren who were sold to the nations. Now, indeed, will you even sell your brethren, or should they be sold to us? Then they were silenced and found nothing to say. So you know if you can get somebody to have nothing to say, that's good. It reminds me of Matthew chapter 10. It says this, verse 37 through 38. He who loves father or mother more than me, Jesus says, is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. 
And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. That's what Nehemiah is doing. That's what Paul is doing. No matter the circumstance, we have to stand on the side of truth. Satan is lurking. He's trying to mess up this situation. He's, he's doing anything he can do to keep this wall from building, whether it was from Samballot or Tobiah, whether it's from the family saying, why are you working on this wall? You're not getting paid for it. We are hungry. It's that there's a famine going on. Come back home. Nehemiah, because he is a godly man, because he, the, the good hand of the Lord is upon him, and the people who are working with them knows it. Even though they might wither a little bit, they stand back up, and that's what it takes. 2 Corinthians 10, 4 through 5 says this, for the weapons of our, of our warfare are not carnal, because that's what they're dealing with, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to obedience of Christ. We have to do that when hard times come, when people are telling you to do something you shouldn't do. You need to get your marching orders from the word of the Lord by faith, whether we see a, a, a out or not, God is faithful. He will do that for us. Verse nine, then I said, what you are doing is not good. Nehemiah has come to his senses. Should you not walk in the fear of our God because of the reproach of the nation, our enemy? Notice why. Because of the reproach of the nation of our enemies. It matters how we live. We need to live holy lives so the unbelieving world can see us. Nehemiah was no coward. So he, he, he comes back. He says, I was wrong, but I'm going to do the right thing now. Let's all go in. Let's not do this. Hosea, I think it says, how can two walk together and not agree? If ever I'm walking with a brother in Christ and he's not walking the right way, we shouldn't walk with them. We should be able to agree. Verse 10 says, I also, with my brethren and my servants, notice what he says, am lending them money and grain Please let us stop this usury. Restore now to them even this day their lands, their vineyards, their olive groves, and their houses. Also a hundredth of the money and the grain, the new wine and the oil that you have charged them. So he's given his up also, verse 12. So they said, we will restore it. This is almost as powerful. They have this land, they have these homes this is almost a powerful of a testimony as when uh, Abraham goes back into the camp and he says, hey, boys, we're all getting circumcised today. And the only reason they said, are you crazy, 30-year-old men, 28-year-old men, the only reason they said, okay, we'll do it, Abraham, is because we know you are a man of character. And if you say you heard from the Lord and this is what he said, we'll go along with it. That's why it matters how I live, how we live. Uh, 
I'm not going to say this. I was thinking of a good politician uh, statement, but I'm not going to do it. Verse 12, so they said, we were restored and will require nothing from them. The good hand of the Lord was on Nehemiah for them to change this quickly. We will do as you say. Then I called the priests, these are the ones he's got to handle, and required an oath from them that they would do according to the, this promise. Then I shook out the fold of my garment and said, so may God shake out each man from his house and from his property who does not perform this promise. Sidebar, I remember my mama Nelly, my dad's mom. She would always wear an apron when she cooked. And she, she would say, boy, I'm going to shake this off of me. And I guarantee you this is where she gets it from. Godly woman. This is amazing. So may God shake out each man from his house and from his property who does not perform this, perform this promise. It's like an oath. Even thus may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said they agree, amen, and praise the Lord. Then the people did according to this promise. So they worked that out. Verse 14, moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year until the 32nd year of King Artaxerxes, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the governor's provision. I believe Nehemiah tells us this because he's, he's wanting us to understand they've given all this stuff back. He's given all his back. He's wanting us to understand the faithfulness of of God. And he also tells on some people here, Ezra, but the former governors who were before me laid burdens on the people and took from them bread and wine besides 40 shekels of silver. Yes, even their servants bore rule over the people, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. Indeed, I also continued to work on this wall and we did not buy any land. All the, you can always turn back from the era of your way as long as you have breath in your lungs. The prodigal did it. Manasseh did it. One of the wickedest kings ever in Israel. He turned back, and that's what they're doing here. So never give up on anyone. I also continued to work on this wall, and we did not buy any land. All my servants were gathered there for the work. And at my table were 150 Jews and rulers, besides those who came to us from the nations around us. Now that which was prepared daily was one ox and six choice sheep. Also fowl were prepared for me, and once every 10 days an abundance of all kinds of wine. Don't get too excited over that, David Hickey. Just joking. <laughs> Yet in spite of this, I'm just joking, you guys, about David. Yet in spite of this, I did not demand the governor's provision. Notice he still didn't demand the governor's provision because the bondage was heavy on this people. Remember me, my God, for good according to all that I have done. He didn't have to say, I think it's for us, that he said, remember me, O God, for all the good that I have done. Because God is an excellent bookkeeper. 
He remembers every good thing we do for his kingdom and for his people. And so we need to understand that when we have a hard decision to make, we need to understand that God gives us grace to make the right decision, and we need to follow him. Let's pray. Father, I know that the book of Nehemiah is about building this wall for Jerusalem, for protection. And Lord, I keep saying that Nehemiah is also about a godly man or woman doing the things to help help them to walk in a godly way, doing the reading of the word, doing meditation of the word, being around believers, being ready when the enemy or the flesh arises, how to put the flesh down, how to combat the enemy, all these things. Why is Nehemiah being successful? Because the good hand of the Lord is upon him. And he has trust and he has confidence in you, Lord. May we grow day by day to to have more confidence and trust you more, Lord. Even when it comes to doing the right thing, give us grace to do those things because we know, Lord, that your ways are not our ways. Your ways are better than ours. So let us trust you more. Let us be faithful to you more. Lord, I continue to pray for those that are hurting, for those that are sick at Calvary Restore. I pray for uh, lost children uh, that, that, that don't know you, Father, that we've been praying for for a long time, Lord, that you would move mightily. I know you're working, but Lord, I pray that you would move mightily, that these... Uh, Children would be saved, Father. Lord, I continue to pray for uh, Maui, the destruction that they're going through over there, Lord. I pray that your good hand would be upon the people there, that they would be rebuilt and rebuilt better, Lord. I pray that those that don't know Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior over in Maui, Lord, that they would come to know you even in this terrible condition, Father. You are working. You are a good God. These things happen because there's sin in the world, Father. But you are good. So just keep them, Father. Give them all the provision that they need, Father God. Lord, continue to watch over Calvary. Restore, Father. Keep us strong in you. Keep the family together, Father. May we be that city on a hill. And I ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.